Hey guys, Zach here, and I wanted to let you guys know that Fieldwork is brought to you in part by General Mills. General Mills is partnering with farmers and suppliers to advance regenerative ag practices on a million acres of farmland by 2030. From Farm Fest 2019, hello beautiful Morgan. Minnesota, not Morton. Not Morton. <laughs> this is the Fieldwork Podcast. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Zach, thank you for coming. Thanks for coming, Mitchell. Yeah, thank you. My name is Mitchell Hora. I'm a farmer from southeast Iowa. And my name is Zach Johnson. I'm a farmer in west-central Minnesota, just about 100 miles straight north of here. This is the Fieldwork Podcast. As we like to say, it's a, a show by farmers for farmers. Yeah, we're really excited to be here today and have a just kind of an open-ended conversation like we'd like to have anyway on the podcast, but be able to be here with all of you guys too and take your questions and just have a, have a fun conversation here today. Uh, we've got some, some of our most special guests that we've had on the podcast here with us today. Uh, we've got our fathers here with us, um, guys that we brought from our farms all the way here to talk with you guys today, have a little conversation about sustainable ag and some of the things that we've done on our own farms. Yeah, we brought in the big celebrity guests here for our last show of the first season of Fieldwork. So this is our final one. This show will be going into our normal podcast feed. Um, and I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't mention that if you're not subscribed to the podcast, you need to make sure you get subscribed. You bet. Huh? So for me, I've got an Android. I think Mitchell is an Apple guy. So he can explain that, but for me, I just go to the Google Play Store. Um, I prefer to use Stitcher, but you can use whatever app you want to listen to your podcast and look up Fieldwork, hit the, the plus or the heart or whatever you need to hit and, and get subscribed. Yeah, and I use Apple Podcasts, so it's super easy. Then you can go on Apple Podcasts, search Fieldwork, and make sure that you subscribe. Like Zach said, we're wrapping up season one right now, and we do have plans that we are going to have a season two and keep this conversation going. It's super important to have this conversation about sustainable agriculture, communicate not only as farmers, but be able to communicate to the consumer as well, and really be able to tell our story, which is awesome. So be sure to follow along and subscribe to the podcast. Um, as, as Mitchell said, we brought our dads in here today. So the, the purpose of the Fieldwork podcast, what we love to do is talk about um, different types of farming, different practices, what you're using on your farm, what you've tried on your farm, maybe what's worked really well for you, what has not worked well for you, what you're trying to achieve, and, and how we go about that. So the theme of today's show is generational perspectives on sustainable ag. Um, I want to take a quick poll and look. Uh, how many in the audience, just raise your hand, I'm not going to call on you for anything, but how many of you are over 50? Nobody up here is over 50? <laughs> how, how about under 50? I see, it looks like we got a pretty young crowd here. That's great. A lot of people under the age of 50. I'm under 50, Zach. You're under 50. I am as well. You're, you're much younger than me. <laughs> All right, so we're, what we're going to do is kind of start out with some, some questions for our dads and kind of get to hear their answers on, on those questions, and hopefully they won't drag us through the mud too badly. So, Dad, you can introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about our farm down in Iowa. Okay, I'm Brian Hora, and uh, we live in Washington County, Iowa, which is about uh, 30 miles south of Iowa City, down in the southeast corner. Uh, we farm uh, corn and soybeans. Uh, I've been there since 1985, uh, farming full-time. 
And um, my wife is here as well. And um, Mitchell's our oldest son. We have three daughters that are uh, all, all off. Uh, one's, one's done with college, uh, one's going to grad school, and one's at Iowa State right now. And then uh, Mitchell's youngest brother, our youngest son is David, uh, just going to be going to Iowa State here in a, in a couple of weeks. So he's the grunt guy at home. He got left home to pull soil samples this week. Um, and a uh, little perspective, southeast Iowa is as dry as probably any point, any spot in the, in the country right now. Um, we had uh, about a half inch of rain in the month of July. So we have the extreme opposite of what you guys have had up here. And uh, he's having the fun trying, trying to put a soil probe in the ground this afternoon. So good challenge for him. So maybe just one tidbit more on the cover crop kind of stuff and the no-till that we're using and before we pass along to the Johnsons over here. Okay. So we started no-tilling uh, back probably in the late 70s, no-tilling corn into soybeans. Started no-tilling soybeans first time in 1986 because of a real wet fall and uh, have no-tilled soybeans ever since in the corn stalks. The cover crop, we kind of got started about four or five years ago, tinkering with it a little bit. And uh, this past year, um, last fall, we seeded almost every acre to cover crop. Most of it was, was wheat. Um, some of it was rye and some blends of some other things in with it as well. Um, those acres that are not cover cropped right now are because there are trials where we are trying to just get a good uh, check between uh, uh, the, what the changes are in soil health. So we've got some strips that are left uh, to straight no-till. And with those, with those blocks, Mitchell does a lot of testing for us and we're monitoring soil health as much as we possibly can through soil testing. All right, um, our farm, I'm fifth generation farmer, so great, great grandpa came over from Sweden in the 1870s and homesteaded our farm where we still farm a lot of our stuff today. Um, you wanna fill in a little bit on our, on our family farm history? Okay, I'm, I'm Nathan Johnson, Zach's dad. Uh, we farm at Lowry, Minnesota, oh, about 100 miles straight north of here. Um, and we grow corn and soybeans. Um, I actually grew up in southern Minnesota down at Jackson. And my grandfather still had land up at Lowry, Minnesota. So in 1982, well, I got married in 81 and 82, we went up there and started farming. And so we farmed there since then. Yeah, and we farm, um, it's, it's mostly all heavy clay soils, I would call it. So our farm is in a completely different area than the Horace farm. And that's where Mitchell and I get to talk back and forth on, on a lot of the success that he's seen implementing different practices and a lot of the failures that we've seen with trying some of that. So. I mean, you've tried some no-till stuff. We have a little bit of experience trying cover crops uh, without any success to this point. But, I mean, what's your, your history a little bit on some of the no-till no -till stuff you've seen in the past? Well, we actually started trying to no-till in the probably mid-80s. We had a number of wet years where the tillage didn't get done in the fall. Then we'd come back in the spring and, and try to do different things with the corn stalks and they were hard to work with. So we did no-till as much as we could. The trouble we run into, we got heavy wet ground and we're far enough north, I think, where the temperature stays cool, so the ground never dries. You know, I think in May, the, in the average month of May, you get about 15 days uh, that are suitable for field work. Well, we have fields that take four, five, six days of sun to dry out, and it's hard to get a stretch like that where we can actually get back in. And we might have one day through the whole month of May where one or two fields are dry enough. We do have some fields that we actually have no-tilled a number of times, some lighter ground and some hills, and that actually has worked pretty good. Through the 90s, we no-tilled a couple different fields. We no-tilled quite a bit. We'd leave the corn stalks and 
no-till beans in there, and that worked on them. But overall, it, it's, it's been really tough for us to do any no-till. I think probably 20% of our ground would work pretty good, maybe 30, but the rest is just pretty heavy and wet. It doesn't dry. We just don't have enough lighter ground, it seems, to fit a full no-till um, operation into, into our operation. It just doesn't seem to fit a lot of it. One, so one of the things that as farmers we're always dealing with is the weather, of course. And this year, the rainfall differences like that we've seen in Iowa and you guys have seen here and we've seen in Nebraska and Missouri and some of these places where they've been way, way, way too wet, um, we have to be able to manage a lot of that water. And I know that's one of the things that you guys have worked on a lot. We've worked on it a lot too. We can tell you about some of our water management practices, but tell us about you guys' experience with drain tile and how that's been able to really be a, a stepping stone, a tool to be able to help to manage your farms properly. I think that's one issue that we run into where we're at. I think tiles started moving up from the south and moved to the north, and I, I think the southern areas were able to tile more. Probably in the 70s, I know a lot of tile went in, in probably in northern Iowa and southern Minnesota, and the tile just uh, wasn't very popular even in 82 yet when I moved up there. Since that time, there's been a lot of tile, but we're getting restricted uh, pretty much. So the, the spots where we really can't no-till, we also can't tile. They won't let, allow us to tile those. I think if we could tile them, or perhaps pattern tile some areas, then it would probably work to no-till. You think it would just make that big of a difference that it would help drain the extra water from the soil profile? I don't, not sure if it would make enough difference, but I know it would really help. Cause yeah. The thing is, we, we run in with no-till, everything muds up, and you're unplugging the openers, and, and it just it seems like a tough go, and we can't get anything done. Plus, it also seems like we're packing the ground when we do that. That's a big issue is the compaction, which I'm sure it is yeah. in your area too, but huge. Yeah, maybe that just seems huge around us. Yeah, so that's part of the problem. You know, as farmers, if we go into our fields and it's too wet, then you smash that soil down and it causes even more problems for years in the future. And then you have even more issues, more headache to deal with. But maybe share some of what you've seen with drain tile over a couple different generations now too. Yeah, well, there's a lot of ground down in our area that's been tiled for years. Um, in fact, we, we spend a fair amount of time trying to fix tile that were put in by hand years ago. Um, and then eliminating also the old clay tile that we've got. But it, the pattern tiling has become a lot more popular. And down in our area, we also deal with a lot of tile terraces. Uh, so we have inlets uh, above, the, above the, the terraces and uh, try to take the, the surface water, um, keep it from moving down the hillsides. Where we're at, clear down in southwest, southeast corner of Iowa, um, those of you are familiar with the way the, the rivers that start up here uh, flow all the way down across the corner towards the Mississippi River. And we're down in that corner where all those rivers kind of come together. So we've got the flat ground up in the, up in the high areas, but as you move towards the river, you, you, the slope gets pretty steep. So we'll run the tile terraces, catch the water. And one of the things that we really noticed this year was as we had roughly 15 inches of rain during the month of May, about a five week stretch in there. Um, we were watching some of the fields, some of the neighboring fields that were some just straight no-tilled, some of them were conventional tilled, but we saw a lot of water going over the backs of the terraces this year. And Mitch and I were amazed. We went out to some of our fields where we've been no, uh, cover cropping for three or four years. We looked at those terraces and there was no water in any of them. Um, the tile that's down underneath there was doing its job of pulling that, that subsurface water out and we infiltrated a tremendous amount of water and had nothing moving off of the surface. Uh, carried through into a field where we planted soybeans in, in April this year. 
Um, didn't get the, the cover crop sprayed. It was wheat. wasn't planted real thick, but we didn't get it sprayed until June. It was heading out. Um, but with all the rain that we had on it, there's not a gully on the farm. And there's not really a flat area on that farm either. It's got some, some good roll to it. Mm -hmm. But we didn't have any water move off the surface of that thing that took a gully. Yeah, so I think I want to make sure everyone fully understands kind of what we're talking about too and that what a terrace is is when you have the side of the hill that is sloping down and you have a big hillside, you can catch a lot of water that all flows down that hill together by gravity. And what a terrace is, it's kind of a little bump in that hill. It's, it's a little bit of a, a hump of soil and grass that catches that water. So instead of rushing all the way down the hill at one time, it slows it down. But what we were able to see on our farm was we're able to infiltrate a lot more water too because we have some of that subsurface drainage internally and now soil structure due to our cover crops and living roots and diversity that we're able to get that water to infiltrate down in, um, but it takes the right kind of soils and, and some time, you know, that definitely doesn't happen all at once. And you do see some uneven fields, especially that have been recently tiled. A lot of you have probably seen that, where you can see where the tile is beginning to work and you can see where the tile isn't working yet. Mm -hmm. It's really uneven. So it does definitely take a process, you know, when you're implementing new practices, that takes some time to, to move that soil and get it to work better. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing we found is that drain tile on, on our fields has just been huge, just adding it in places where you think maybe don't even necessarily need it, and you put it in there and all of a sudden that crop just wakes up. It's, a, it's like it's a whole different field, that area, just by getting that little bit of extra water in the profi profile to move out of there to add some, some sponge effect or some bounce to that soil. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna shift gears here just a little bit. I wanna hear um, some answers from from our dads a little bit when it comes to farming, um, a little bit off topic from, from drain tile, but what I'm interested in is, is what do you like most about farming? And then kind of in the same question, what has been your biggest challenge? Well, I guess for myself, I probably liked running the equipment the most of farming. That's probably why I got into it. I always enjoyed, I'm a gearhead and I enjoy driving everything. So I always enjoyed working around the equipment and working with the equipment. And I also enjoy the management and, and the freedom that you get farming. Put in a lot of hours, spring and fall and, and summer, but you also can kind of set your own hours and take some time off. And, yeah. And it, as far as challenges, well, I think I mentioned I started, moved up there in 82 and started farming by myself then. And the whole 80s were quite a challenge. I think probably a few people in here went through that too. The 80s were a tough time. I moved up there and had a young family and took on some debt and... and there were a lot of sleepless nights ring if a guy would get through it. But in the long run, I actually think it probably was good for me to see some of that, learn some of the things that I did learn. It also actually probably put me on a level playing field with some of the neighbors that had been farming for years. And now all of a sudden, we all had just as much money. We were all broke. <laughs> well, for me, I think one of the biggest challenges has been trying to figure out what the right thing to do is what the right thing to do is each and every time you make a decision. And it's gotten more complicated as I've gotten older. I thought it was going to get easier. You know, we do the same thing every year. We plant corn and beans. Well, no, we don't do the same thing every year. But that's, and that's the most exciting part of it to me is there are so many new things that we can try now. Uh, we've been no-tilling, like I said, for quite a few years. Now with this cover crop, we've added in a whole new mix of things. Um, I was thinking about this earlier today, how many different products 
that we tried this year in trials that we have on our farm. And it's somewhere between 20 and 25 brand new products. Of, they're not chemicals. Um, some of them are fertilizers, some micronutrients, but a lot of biological things, um, fertilizer additives, additives go into the herbicides, um, bacterias, and the, the whole gamut. But we've got trials everywhere, which is, to me, is really, really exciting. And it keeps things exciting because I don't know what's gonna happen in the future, which one's gonna stick, and which one's gonna be the best, but that's really what makes it a lot of fun. And not only with the products, but this year, I was trying to think how many different trials of no-till slash cover crop things we have going on. It's eight or 10 different things on the farm. Um, between the 60-inch row corn, um, relay cropped wheat and, and soybeans, um, a, a number of things. It's, it's, it's makes it, makes things really exciting. Let's talk a little bit about sustainability and the environment and what's your thoughts, I guess, when it comes to your generation and the thought about the environment and then versus other generations and what we can do to make sure that farmers stay in a positive light um, and are able to make sure that we are doing things sustainably. What's you guys' thoughts on that? I would question that and say, what's your ideas on what you think on how I would think about that? <laughs> Let me think about that for a second. Yeah, could you repeat the question, please? <laughs> no, I have no idea what I said. How do you think we view that differently when it comes to our, our practices and the effects that we have on our natural resources? Well, actually, I think uh, pretty much all farmers are really in concern about the environment. They all want to take care of the land, probably more than anybody in the would ever think. You know, we you have got the to. people from the cities that think it's all uh, corporate agriculture out there. They don't care about the land. They don't just are for, in it for the money. It's not that at all. And I, I know you're trying to show that on your YouTube channel some, and the people need to realize what it is. But as far as what's happened, I think, with the environment, I think it keeps getting better over time. I can remember when, in the 70s, when I grew up in southern Minnesota, we started farming, the chemicals first came out. And we actually had a neighbor, he'd mix up atrazine, and he'd mix it up, he'd get it in there with his arms and stir it up, the atrazine. <laughs> and now we've come so far with all that, the way we handle the chemicals, the way we've got the swath control, you know, on the GPS, it shuts the sprayer off when it needs to. I think we're doing a lot more for the environment than anybody really realizes. And I think that's going to continue. And I think it's great when we get young people and you get new ideas, and like you said, you've got a lot more tests. When I was younger, we used to run a lot of tests, and then I kind of got away from it some. Now Zach's moving back onto the farm, and we're doing more testing. Yeah. He spends time in the winter and researching things, so I, I think we need to keep it moving and get young people back in there. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't realize Nate and I grew up with the same neighbor uh, mixing that atrazine, because I think <laughs> our guys did the same thing. <laughs> we really did live close together. But uh, no, I th there's uh, I, I, farmers have always been conscience of the environment. I mean, that farm ground and that water that's out there is something that we rely on every year. And as we go back out there for the next year, we have to be conscious of it because we're protecting the investment that we made there in the land and want to have it for a long time. Our families live there and generations are going to need it in the future as well. So um, there's an economic um, advantage to protecting all of that. Yeah. Well, I think that's a big key to it that I always try to get through to people that don't understand our way of life is say, you know, if I don't take care of my natural resources in my community, then who does that affect? I mean, that, that comes, that's our family. That's my kids swim in the lakes out there. Yep. We drink the well water. 
I mean, that's our natural resources. That's how we make our livelihood. Totally. So if we don't take care of it, it affects us first before anybody else is going to care. Yeah, and I think, like we brought up here, you know, farmers really want to do the right thing, and, and we're glad that we get to share and tell that story. And it's all about what logistically and economically works for that individual situation. Just like how we have to take care of ourselves as individuals, we have to take care of our soil and our farms at an individual basis too. And uh, so now we just like that we have the tools and technology to be able to do that. Any You're supposed to have a question guys? for me. What do you have? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I know we've tried one, uh, cover crops on no-tilling probably more in the last few years. There's, for me personally, there's nothing I would like more than trying to get away from tillage and spending the money on tillage. So we've been trying some different things and, and done a little bit of no-till. And what are your experiences that you think of the no-till and, and how has that come around from what you thought it would be like when, two, three years ago? Well, I, I mean, I, I grew up with conventional tillage. We're still almost all conventional tillage. Um, and I guess, my, so my thoughts on it are uh, quite possibly we could figure out a way to make no-till work on our farm. But I also believe that it would definitely take some time. It's going to take some years to build up that soil structure and make that soil what it is. So the question then becomes, how do you manage through those years of trial? And, you know, you're not going to turn, I mean, we're not going to take 2,000 acres and just switch it over to no-till. It just, you'd be, you'd be done. Yeah. I mean, it just wouldn't work that way. So how do you, how do you find the equipment or pay for the equipment to either purchase or rent it and then... Who's going to go out and run it? And then what tractor are we going to use? Because we're going to have to take a tractor away from something else to go run that piece of equipment. And just fitting it in with the operation where right now we're set up to run the acres that we have with the machinery that we have and do the best we can to be as efficient as possible with what we have on our acres. So all of a sudden, if we throw a wrench into that, then, then how do we manage that to try to, to try to turn some acres over and maybe build that soil structure up and then... And then year after year, if we go five, six, seven years, and the soil structure, maybe, sure, maybe it'll build up and be great after that, but how many years can you take that hit before it is built up if there is a big yield loss? And then, and then what if we don't get it to work? Well, and you've got a good story on that whole deal, too, on a catastrophic failure in trying new things. And when we jumped into this stuff, too, sure. it was not a smooth ride. No, the first, first year we got into the cover crops, um, yeah, we made our mistakes. Um, planted too much rye, planted it way too thick, and uh, probably let it grow a little bit longer than we needed to in the spring, didn't get it killed right, and yeah, we gave up some yield. But uh, in the process now, we've, we've taken the time, that was a, a small area, we've got another one set up this year, where we had this relay crop trial, and uh, because of the weather, there was three or four acres that didn't get planted until uh, the middle of July. Again, it was just a plot. Um, first week of July, I guess, we planted it. And some of those beans are still laying in dry dirt because uh, they haven't had enough water on them to germinate them. But, you know, the rest of the plot looks extremely good. And we're going to be planting uh, beans next year into a standing rye crop and harvest the rye probably in July, right off the top of the beans. And um, I think the way those beans look right now, um, they're going to make probably 50, 55 bushel. And this is a pretty tough hillside. So uh, I think, you know, try, trying something new and different and not being afraid to try some different things is, is the fun challenge. So we, we won't get into this story too much, but 
just for context, what we did was we planted wheat last fall, and then we planted soybeans I, Mitchell, into I believe the wheat. It's wheat. Wheat. Yeah, sorry, it's wheat. But we planted the wheat last fall, <laughs> and then we planted the soybeans into the wheat. And then this year we harvested that wheat over the top of the soybeans. And so the soybeans were already out there and growing, and those look phenomenal. But what happened though is we weren't able to plant all of our beans into that wheat and until July. And then we got no rain in July. So we saw some things that were really great and are promising and make us want to try more next year, but other things that was a total loss. And there's no risk mitigation tools, insurance, or any of those kind of programs do not cover any of this stuff. So it's taken it out of our own risk, our own pocket to try some of these things. But that's why we have it on a very small acreage too, and just trying new things and trying to, trying to experiment. And it's kind of fun too. Right, and then like we talked about yesterday, it's fun to come up with a plan and think you know what's gonna work and then all of a sudden, mother nature kicks you in the face and <laughs> all of a sudden that doesn't work anymore. You can't get that done this year because it rained at the wrong time or it didn't quit raining or something broke down and then the rains came or you know, Mother Nature controls so much of our life, there's only so much we can do. Yeah. So some really good stuff here. Um, I have been told that we're gonna do questions for everyone at the end, but any last uh, thoughts from you guys maybe before we switch out and get some new special guests up here? No, I, it's one of these things as years ago, I remember talking to, being at a, a conference. Uh, I think I told Mitchell this uh, in a show, he, was, he spoke at, last year in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where he was talking about soil health. And I reminded him that in 1986, I did the exact same program at that show on no-till. So I think it's kind of funny how the, how the generational things, how the communications, a lot of things stay the same, um, but then things change with social media and the way you guys are able to uh, communicate with people, not just from your home states, your home counties, but around the world and send the message out. And it's a tremendous opportunity. and. Uh, um, it's exciting for us as dads, as family members, to sit back and watch to see how the world is changing and how American agriculture and young farmers are um, affecting what's happening in the entire world. You really think anybody uses social media, though? I, I don't know. Apparently, apparently, some kids wanted your autograph for some reason today, Zach. <laughs> I, think I don't know it's, if that's because of that or what. <laughs> it's a fad. You have any closing thoughts? Uh, no, I guess I would just agree with pretty much everything Brian said. It, it is fun to see the, the kind of some things that are similar, and they come around and, and go again. So we get to make the same mistakes every 30 years. Yeah, yeah it's fun to watch somebody else make that mistakes <laughs> instead of actually doing it yourself. It's very encouraging. <laughs> well, guys, thanks a lot. We, we really appreciate having you guys up here with us today, and we'll bring up uh, our next guest here. Our we'll keep this guest. conversation rolling. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, next, we're going to keep this uh, conversation going about sustainability. we got a couple new guests coming up with us. We have a script, and Zach and I are really bad at following scripts. But we really hate scripts. We don't want to screw this up. But um, I need one. Or yeah, I just, the train one. comes off the rails. Yeah, it's bad. So Cody Nelson and, and Dodie, Jody DeYoung-Hughes are going to come up, and we'll just let them introduce themselves so we don't screw it up even more than what we would probably do anyway. So, Jody, why don't we, uh, we'll let you go first. Oh, okay. Tell well, us who you are. 
Well, you said my name right, so that's a bonus. It's not Jody D. Jung Hughes. It's uh, Jody <laughs> D. Young Hughes. And I'm uh, with the University of Minnesota Extension, and I work out of the Wilmer office, and I help farmers try to reduce tillage and uh, work on compaction, kind of the physical sides of soil. And I'm Cody Nelson. I'm the owner of Soil RX Incorporated. Uh, we're a crop consulting company where we help farms, <coughs> excuse me, uh, incorporate other soil health principles and cover crops on their operations. We, we actually work uh, in Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and South Dakota. All right, uh, Jody and Cody, thank you for joining us here today um, on the Fieldwork Podcast. What we want to do now is kind of open some things up to the audience and, and some viewers on Facebook. We are on Facebook Live right now, too, so we're going to open. Yeah, you didn't know that? I didn't know we were on Facebook Live. Uh, now the pressure's on. This is awesome. Yeah, so if, if anybody's watching out there on Facebook, we're going to open it up to questions. We've got Todd down here yeah. and Amy over here. they got microphones. If we've got questions from the audience, we've got Jody and Cody up here to kind of help us facilitate those questions and figure out what the answers are supposed to be. Yeah. Mitchell and I are just the pretty faces. Yeah, we're just in the middle. We're just going to repeat everything that sounds good. We're going to be like, yeah, that sounds good. All right, Amy's got one. Um, how is like all the high tech gear and all the tractors and equipment help with the farming compared to the old tech stuff with no like cameras or any of that stuff to see what's going on when you use your planters or cultivators? Zach still uses a horse and buggy on his farm. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I saw that YouTube video. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to yeah, go? Yeah, Jody. What, how do you? What do you think about all the technology and how that's helping us to be able to change some of these things up? Uh, well, I know farmers who say you don't need that, and then there's other ones that say you can't live without it. Um, it's, they now have variable intensity tillage, so if you're going over a hill, you can lighten up your tillage, and as you go down the hill, you can deepen it up again. Um, they, I think it's great for nutrients to be able to put them on in, based on what your soil actually needs. And same with, uh, like your dad said about um, having the sprayer so it doesn't, it shuts off when it goes over waterways and, and some of that has been phenomenal. That's been great. I, I think a lot of it just helps us be more efficient. And like we were talking about before, trying to move forward and always do things better. You know, we know that we're pretty good at what we do, but how can we do better? And the technology that, that keeps coming really helps us to be able to to figure that out. And a lot of that comes from information. Once we have that information, we can look at that and then develop, whether it's the iron that we're developing around it or the software programs, it just helps us be more efficient, use less, less chemistry, maybe less fertilizer, maybe less seed than we were putting in the ground before and just figure out how do we do more with less. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Really good question. Yeah, Zach, you and your dad talked about some of the challenges on implementing no-till and cover crops. I wonder with Cody and Jody up there, if they can offer some first step tips to help you move in that direction, if, if that's the way you'd like to go. With um, farmers, one, I say start small, and you're doing that. You try it on a few acres at a time. You don't turn 2,000 acres into no-till. The other thing is, is going into no-till um, has a, a learning curve, and so getting people who understand no-till and that you can talk to them and have a mentor is a huge thing to be able to talk these situations out because like you've said, you plan these things and then Mother Nature changes them. 
The other thing is a lot of farmers don't, we're talking no-till, and that is extreme from where you were before. So if you break down all that structure, and it takes a while for your soil to build up, you're going to have some problems out there. So why not just reduce tillage? If you reduce the passes, reduce the aggressiveness, or reduce, reduce the depth of tillage, start that way first. Start, you know, making a lighter footprint on the soil and get used to it instead of just going straight to no-till. Yes. So your, your dad said he tried no-till 20, 30 years ago, and it didn't work very good. And one thing that we do have now that we didn't have then, we didn't understand how cover crops help make the transition to no-till work a lot better. And especially in your area with those heavy, wet soils that cool, they're, you know, they're later to warm up in the spring, that's when we got to have a cover that, that comes in the spring and grows and utilizes that excess moisture. Jody talked about finding somebody that uh, you can learn from. Find, and the key is to find somebody local. You can't go, you know, you two aren't going to learn too much from each other on each other's farms because there's such a drastic difference. But there's several farms within 30 miles there. Uh, there's farms all over the place that are incorporating cover crops and no-till or reduced till. And, and you have to earn the right. I think you hit it er right earlier. You have to earn the right to be able to truly no-till. And it was probably easier for the horrors to go to no-till where they're at than it was for you. So it's going to take you longer for sure. Uh, but there's certain things that work. You know, we always used to say start small, but there's certain things that we know are working really, really well. For instance, planting soybeans green into rye works really, really well it's all over the place. It's more about how we manage that, whether we, if it's really wet, we want to let them grow. If it's really dry, we want to terminate them earlier. But there's certain things that work, and those things I think we need to take off and run with them, and then the crazy stuff, we need to start small. <laughs> Amy's got a question down here. You say plant green into rye like that isn't crazy stuff. Oh, where I'm from, that's crazy stuff. Yeah. I'll take you out next spring. We'll show you. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Lee Tuzdall, Slater, Iowa. Um, really appreciate your show, guys. Um, so, sorry for a tough question, but you knew one, one had to come, right? <laughs> so, industrial grain production in the upper Midwest operates in this, what we call, leaky uh, system we have. We have drainage tile and we have annual crops, right? Before your ancestors came from Sweden and mine came from Norway and, and Germany, we had perennial crops on the, we had perennial plants on the land and no drainage tile. Well, we've turned that around. We have annual crops and we have drainage. So industrial grain production concentrates on corn and soybeans. The scientists are telling us that the water quality in Iowa is actually getting worse, not better. So you guys have certain goals, you gotta make your payments, I understand all that, and you absolutely do care about the environment. There's no doubt in my mind, just like I do on my farm. So where do we go from here? Our water quality is declining, uh, and it's not just because it, some of it comes from Lake Chetek and what, <laughs> that's okay. Um, you know, where do we go from here? I mean, it, it's a tough question, I understand. This is actually, I, I think we should definitely hit on this again when our dads are back. Maybe we can get our dads back up here later and ask why corn and soybeans? But I've got my, I've got an answer too, but I want to, that was a really, really good question on why are we in the system that we're in and farming the crops that we are, you know, and now we're set up the entire supply chain, this entire industry is set up for raising corn and soybeans and raising them really well. The entire industry is built in around corn and soybeans. And we can raise them better than anyone in the world. Well, because we focused on production and we're good at it. Yeah. I mean, it was, 
and now we know more. Um, you know, some farmers are like, are you, are you telling me that I did it wrong all these years? It's like, no. The biology of the soil is so new to us. Only 1% of all the bacteria in the soil can be grown in a laboratory. You have no idea what all this stuff can do. So we're just learning, we're just looking at things a new way. It's not just production oriented anymore. We're starting to look at more things and looking at um, like snurt in the ditches. That's starting to really bother people and uh, farmers alike. You know, we're finding in West Central Minnesota that we're getting anywhere from two tons of soil moving to the ditch to up to 33 tons in one season. That's a lot of our soil that we can't get back and we have some of the best soil in the whole world. We don't want to give it away. We don't want to give it downstream. And I think it's just an awareness. I think with the social media, there's just more stuff out there. Um, it's just been a whole movement that's coming. And we weren't wrong before, it's what we knew. Zach, why corn and soybeans? I, well, I would imagine because that's what the market demanded and still demands, like you said. I mean, at one point, that's what the market was saying, we want you guys to grow. That's what you're really good at growing. That's what's going to pay on these acres. So that's what we went to. We went to corn and soybeans, and then the infrastructure built up behind that, and that's still clearly what's in demand. I mean, that's how you make the money or try to make the money on the acres out here. I think it's been fun for me to drive around some of the neighboring farms around here and see sugar beets and sweet corn and not a lot of diversity, but a little bit. And, but a lot of it, there's not necessarily great markets set up that pay and make it work economically because we have fixed land costs, we have fixed costs for our equipment and a lot of other costs that factor into there um, that we have to deal with and that we're gonna have every year no matter what we're growing. So we have to factor that in into the marketability too. Yeah, you, the infrastructure has to be there. You have to have somewhere to take that crop if you're going to grow something besides corn and soybeans. And if you're going to go a long ways, you have to make sure that crop's going to pay you to do that. Mm -hmm. How well is corn and soybeans paying right now? Not that great. How well is anything paying right <laughs> no, now? Oh, exactly. That's right. <laughs> okay, my question is, is, what is the biggest hurdle for somebody to make this step to the new system? And is there an age where those that are above this age don't want to jump that hurdle? Is there, do you see a difference of the age group? And what is that hurdle? I'd like to touch on that one. So I, I see two different groups that are really, really yeah. uh, more willing to make that change. And, and I see the older group who remember when, when dad or grandpa used to do that. And then I see the younger innovative group that really want to get after it and, and are kind of tired of doing the same thing that they've always done. So that, it's the middle group that's really tough. And you know, it's a lot of your dads, your dads aren't very old. Oh, thank God. You don't have to pay me for that. Uh, so anyways. I'm that age too, Jody, you're not very old either. Thanks. So, but that group is definitely the more challenging group to talk about soil health stuff with. But when you start talking to, to that next generation, Jim, you're one of the few in that, in that age group that's really, really easy to, to talk cover crops and soil health with. So, uh, but that gets to be the biggest issue, that age gap, it, it's all about, do I remember when grandpa did it or are we innovative and new and wanna try something different and change the farm? You know, every generation wants to make their own step on their farm. Well, I've seen a couple of different ways, uh, just from the people I visited. A lot of times it's the younger kids coming out with the new ideas 
And then it's, I think the, the dads are kind of feeling like, you know, are you saying I didn't do this right? I mean, they've been doing it for years and years. It's worked. Why change it? Then I've had a few farmers, older ones, call me and say, my son just got out of college and he wants to come and just tear everything up. He just wants to go, 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 and then go off to the lake or something. So I've had them go both ways. Um, but so it's you just work with where they're at. More of an individual situation than it is necessarily generational. Right, yeah. It just depends on the person. Yeah, I think yeah. I've kind of seen that too. But, it, but for every person, it's kind of maybe it's getting to what is their holdup. And I think a lot of it, it's a mental yeah. thing too, like you said. So it, that's what, what I've picked out of all these answers is it's just a mindset kind of difference. And each person is going to be individual and just we have to have the conversation. We always like to pick on the coffee shop, right? You don't want to be the one that everybody quits talking when you walk into the coffee shop. And that, that is really some of the biggest issues with, is. with changing in agriculture. So that's why I drink pop. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You don't but have to you worry go to the it. bar yeah. and they talk there too. So <laughs> oh, I, I do go to the bar. So we got a Facebook Live question. Yeah, we have a question from Brady. He asks Cody, "How can a guy like Zach better incorporate cover crops on his cold, wet soils?" She read that very professionally. Oh. She did. So how can we help Zach incorporate cover crops on his cold, wet soils? First off, it would really help if we could add another crop to the rotation. You know, if we could add wheat or barley or another small grain. I believe, I believe it's wheat. 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 Can I try Thank you. Wheat. Wheat. Thank you. Yeah. So anyways, that would be the easy one. There are several different options that we could do. Uh, the first one would be, the simple one would be just plant winter rye after you harvest the corn. Winter rye will germinate in 34 degree soil. Uh, it'll start growing again when the soil hits 38 degrees. We may not see a lot of growth in the fall. Uh, we may not see any growth at all in the fall, but we will see growth in the spring. And then just like Mitchell says, they'll plant beans directly into that green, which I know is crazy talk. Crazy talk. Crazy it's talk. not really though. It's working really good. So that brings a lot of really good benefits. Do you have any white mold issues on your farm? Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah that's so, why that's a big part of the reason why we plant 30 inch rows. Yeah, exactly. So what happens then when you let that rye grow up and you plant you plant the beans into the rye, let the rye grow up, and then we terminate that rye, whether we roll it or whether most likely we're gonna use a herbicide to terminate that rye, uh, then that's gonna lay down flat. It's gonna help protect the soil. And when we get these heavy rainfalls that we've been experiencing, now we don't have those white mold spores bouncing back up on the soil, onto the lesion of the soybeans, and that's really going to help reduce your white mold counts in your soybeans. So that's going to be one easy way, and that one doesn't take... We, me and Mitchell were talking earlier about planters and how you need, probably at some point in time, would need to update your planter if you were going to go to no-till, correct? Uh, yeah, if, yep. you, if you were going to do a full transfer over, yeah, yep, probably. Yep. But, but in that system, with your soil, it's still going to be somewhat mellow enough with that rye that, that with that air down pressure that you do have, that would most likely work really well. I would not try and do a whole bunch of corn no-till that way, but I would absolutely try the soybeans. So I've got to play devil's advocate a little bit yeah. because that's my job up here. Yeah, absolutely. So if I'm going to plant winter rye down, uh, I would probably do it by having it spread and then I'd run it in with a, a light tillage pass. Um, maybe like a a pro-till or something like yeah. that, because we typically traditionally run a deep ripper over our, our corn stock. So we'd have to get, we would have to find a high-speed disc or a, you know, like a pro-till style of thing to try and run, chop up the residue, get the corn stocks worked in, but also not bury that, that cover crop too deep. 
So I, I, I would want to do that as early as possible because a big advantage that I see to something like rye would be the winter erosion with the wind. Yep. And if we don't get that snow cover, the wind erosion that we can get and trying to prevent that snurt in, in the road ditches. So I would want to try and get a little bit of growth with that rye. Whether I get it or not, then I'm going to move on to my next thing, which would be in the spring. You get a spring like we had this year. We've got warm temps and tons of rain. I mean, how tall is that rye going to be by the time I can get out there on something if I can drive on it? Because I've got con conflicting stuff coming at me saying, well, cover crops will help with evapotranspiration and the soil will be drier. And then I got the next person telling me, well, we switched to cover crops and it's great because it holds all the moisture in. Yeah, so that's where cover crops aren't really cover crops, right? It, it all depends on what type of cover crops we're talking about. So certain cover crops are going to be good at certain things. Others are going to be good at others. Uh, There's not just one perfect easy there, way to do this? No, we don't do just cash crops. So I, we work with several, several different farms, and there's not two farms that do the exact same thing. What, and that's the same whether you're conventional, sustainable, regenerative, whatever label you want to put on any of these farms, there's not two farms alike. There's right. nobody that farms exactly like you do. Yep, everybody's and, got a different situation and a different... Uh, impression on how to do something, exactly. whatever works for them. Exactly, and not everybody's right, not everybody's wrong, you know, and, and uh, but they're, in that situation, you know, to, to call out your devil's advocate, the, the moisture, let's touch on that first. So winter rye uses about an inch of rain a day throughout the month of May. So it's soaking up a lot of moisture. Now, I know even this year with this kind of rain, you can't soak up all that rain. I mean, there was right. a lot of water, but it didn't really help whether we had rye or whether it was worked ground. There was issues all over the place, but we were still using a lot. But what rye really does more than anything is it puts roots down below the ground. And, and it's almost like you're putting re-rod in the soil and gives you that ability to carry over that root structure. And that's, that's really what's gonna help you as much as anything. That's gonna be your first step in that corn-soybean rotation in those cool, wet soils, Brady. So um, he's your neighbor too, I think. <laughs> well, neighbors like in, within 30 miles. Oh, that's close well, enough, yeah. And also with uh, cover crops, it depends what your goal is. Is your goal to have winter cover? Is your goal to break up compaction? Is, you know, to graze cattle? It, so you'll use different things for different ones. And I, I kind of have farmers start with uh, cover crops in like the V4 stage of corn because it's not going to be competitive and it will, you know, live under the canopy for a while. And then when you harvest, then you get your cover crop coming up and nice. Then you get the winter cover too. Um, and then the other big thing is uh, everybody could reduce tillage, unless you're no-till. Uh, you can reduce your tillage and save you $20, $25 a pass, either by the depth, the aggressiveness, or how many passes you make. And you'll see a direct benefit in that, in that you have standing stocks that is like straws wicking water straight into the soil. So you can start on different avenues. Um, with no-till though, I would, I would promote doing that with cover crops. It helps the system get up and going faster. Amy's got a question. Yeah, my question is, uh, what is the reasoning for switching to all this uh, like non, or no-till or cover crops? Is it the potential income in years to come? Or is it the long-term effects on the environment? That is a heck of a question. That's my that favorite is. one. I love that. Jody. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, no. Um, to build up the soil, what it will do is help water infiltrate quicker into your soil. 
the more you do tillage, the more you physically break apart the, the soil. And so then you end up with water infiltration problems. You end up with crusting. Um, you know, your plants can't swim very long and you get the ponding and they sit there in water. And if you can uh, get better water or better soil health, which is better structure, uh, you get that down into there. Also structure has a benefit. You know, those little aggregates, those little peds you see out there, pull up some grass plants and you'll see them hooked on there. I didn't bring any with me. And if you have those, they act like miniature columns in the soil that help hold up the weight of equipment. The more tillage you do, the more you break apart that structure, the deeper you're, you're going to sink. So if you look at your rut level, it's usually to the depth of your tillage. And also when we make soil pits out there, we never make them bigger than your tractor. Because what happens in the spring when it's wet? If you don't think structure's important, drive over that and see what, what happens. So it's to build structure, better water infiltration, keep uh, erosion down big time. That's my biggest one, is just whatever you do to help erosion will help your soil. My initial thoughts on this question is, we have to be able to make this pay in the short term and in the long term. So we, that's why we baby into it a little bit and that's why we're kind of careful and that's why we work off of other people. And we've had a lot of success in using data to help us to make better decisions in the short term. But what I think in the long term is we know that we do have to continuously improve. We, we always have to. Um, but what we want to make sure we do is we improve fast enough that we don't get regulated into having to do certain yeah. things. And, and in Minnesota, you guys have already seen a lot of regulations come, too. Well, um, so that's my yeah. thoughts on it. You guys are the solution. You know, you can make this, this happen. And just a little plug, down below is some tillage guides that we have 15 years of research on uh, in Minnesota and North Dakota looking at reduced tillage and strip tillage as a plow, vertical till, that type of thing. And what we're seeing is for beans, it's kind of a no-brainer. They just really don't care. They're the darlings out there. They'll take anything. And then um, for corn, it is a little pickier, but then we can back into it. I mean, we can slowly get into it. The other thing that's down there is the Conservation Tillage Conference postcard. And it's a great way to just meet other farmers who are doing it. And it, what has really changed for me in the last 20 years is before farmers wouldn't share, they would say to each other, why should I tell them what I do for weed management when it took me a lot of hard work to do this and I'm just giving it away? But for when it came to soil health, farmers are, are sharing a lot. And like you said, there's not one solution for every farmer out there. But it makes it fun. It makes farming fun again. It's not just plant, spray, you know, harvest, till. Plant, spray, harvest, till. It's now you, you get to think outside the box. I'd like to touch on the profit side of this. If it's not profitable, this is not sustainable. We have to maintain profit in order to make this work. So we can't look at an extra, let's just say we spent 20 or $15 on a cover crop. It could be 10, it could be eight, it could be 25. But if that plus the additional planting costs, we have to eliminate those added costs somewhere else. We, gotta, we have to take that away. So a lot of times when in our area here, we're gonna eliminate some tillage costs in order to pay for that cover crop cost. By utilizing those cover crops, we can maintain our yields. I'm not saying we're gonna get a bunch of big yield bumps, but if we can maintain our yields, reduce our tillage, and increase our net profit just by a tick, 
and then we get all the long-term benefits as a plus. And they got to be a plus. Those long-term benefits have to be an added plus. So we're chasing a unicorn. <laughs> I like unicorns. <laughs> that sounds good. No, that, I mean, you're right, though. Because it, it, you know, we, we always take a lot of pride in the family farms and doing what we do. And the, the, the fact of the matter is that for the family farm to be there, it has to be profitable, right? You yep. have to pay the bills in order. It, it, it's just a part of it. And farmers should be able to make money just like everybody else does at their job. So it's, it's a long-term and a short-term thing. And I think that is part of my thought process on this, too, is to make sure that any policy that is implemented or any of this push that we are aiming for, make sure that it actually accomplishes the goal at hand, which is to just to improve our environmental impact, but make sure that we are helping farm families to be resilient, too. Mm -hmm. And if we run all the small family farms out of business also, then I think we're doing even more harm than good. Todd? Probably more of a comment than a question, but uh, back to Zach's cold soil. Um, I challenge everybody, we're in Minnesota here, northern end of the Corn Belt, you know, and everybody's got the mindset, make it black so it warms up in the spring. Plant that winter rye on a half an acre, and then take your soil temperature probe and test your soil temperature where you got that green plant bringing the energy from the sun and warming up the soil versus the black soil. I've done it. It, it amazed me. I challenge it. Anybody? Thank you. Yeah. And I also add for the tillage guide, we also have the soil temperatures down to two feet underneath different tillage systems, and we have the temps and the moistures. So you can see that, you know, strip till warms up as well as chisel plow. And it also keeps cooler underneath the residue, so you have that moisture for later on. But a building structure, I think, is key to making things warmer. Um, an increased yeah. biology. Getting the airflow, yeah, getting the airflow and the, just that soil to actually function and to have connectivity through the different layers of soil, and that's that, mm -hmm. that structuring component to it. But yeah, that's a really good point. We've, we've got some data, too, on some of the different temperature components. And it, it really is a holistic change that we're making here, and temperature and some of those things wouldn't always be something that you would think of when you're talking about implementing a cover crop or changing your practices. So it's a really good point. One thing we're, I mean, we're seeing a lot of things happen that shouldn't have happened. You know, that, that we didn't, we were trained for years to believe that couldn't work. And, and that's one of those points is that by not, you know, we thought we had to have it black to get it to warm up. And, and with all this stuff going on there, we're finding out all these things. Mitchell's finding out we can grow 60 inch corn down in Iowa and we can do it here too. <laughs> So let's, um, maybe we bring our dads back up here too. If there's any other questions for them, we definitely want to uh, get them brought back in here. It's been a really fast session, but um, I think we've got a couple more minutes for as long as you guys have questions and obviously we'll keep the conversation going. Just kind of reach out for final questions from the audience. Todd has one back there. This is for anybody but Jody, because I know she's uh, a little bit different than the rest of you, but uh, you talked about policy you talked about knowledge, you talked about profit. Do you have any suggestions about how the, the government, uh, you know, with its programs can actually work in those two areas or either of those areas to help accelerate some of the things you're already trying to do maybe more on your own? We've got data like we've never seen before, but that's your data or your producer's data or your the advisor's data. And so any ideas about how to make that go better, we'd love to hear them. Any thoughts on that? Um. Was it how to 
you have policy changes? More about the, you talk about profit, so do we need financial assistance to make these things viable? We need producers and their agents to have information to know how to do it. You know, you talked about every farm is different. Well, the NRC, you know, even just five years ago, I felt like I was kind of doing this myself. But in the past five years, it's been phenomenal how many people are getting trained in improving soil health. And one of them is the Soil and Water and NRCS. And they do have programs to help out, and they're all getting trained on this. Now, if you don't like the one in your county, go to the county over. But uh, they, they really, it's been phenomenal what they're doing. And to me, it's not a long-term issue on the money. It's that short-term transition time for your soil to get up and going and get the structure built. That's where I think farmers need the most help. And then, um, then they, they kind of got under the belt and they can keep working on other things and, and have more confidence. So the Soil and Water NRCS have many, many programs that I didn't even realize how many they had. They, there's hundreds, actually, of different programs. So look up one that you think works the best and tell your NRCS person, I want that one. I'll follow up a little bit on that. Um, one of the challenges that we have um, with that and, and with the, the incentives that we can receive, that farmers can utilize, is a lot of those have limits on them. And they're very good for first time around. Here it is, 25 bucks an acre. Uh, try cover crops, 160 acres. And next year, if you want to do it again, you're going to get money, but you're not going to get as much. And here's the one program on how to do it. You know, plant a bushel of the acre of rye. Well, farmers don't like to be told how to do things. They want to experiment. So there needs to be more flexibility in some of those programs. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges is the flexibility and also not limiting. I, I understand the process of trying to want to spread the money over a lot of, a lot of acres, but um, don't have that disincentive that second year by cutting back because you know, the, those farmers, first year is the toughest year. It's two, three, four years down the road where you really can start to see the benefits and the program's gotta be put together well enough so that they incentivize a long-term commitment to it. And that also goes towards um, the, uh, the crop insurance. Right now, there's a lot of restrictions on our crop insurance that, um, especially planting green, letting this, uh, these, this cover crop grow to full maturity. Um, our uh, crop insurance doesn't like that. And so we have to be able to make some adjustments because those, those systems work and they work really, really well. But those regulations, whether it be government regulation, crop insurance, whatever it may be, um, need to have a little more flexibility built into it because like I stated up here earlier, not all of us are gonna farm the same way. Farmers are all gonna do some things different. So what, what I hear on that too, and, and I think to lead into final takeaways on, on a lot of this stuff too, is it's just allowing farmers to be innovative and the whole point of, I think, a lot of these cost share programs is to help farmers to learn and to try something new. But if you're restricting, it kind of defeats the purpose of helping farmers to try to be innovative, I think is what we're getting at here. So I thought that was a yeah, really good point on that this is a conversation that we need to continue to have and have with our policymakers and, and uh, continue on from here and, and glad that we can do it and share that with you all here today. What's your final, uh, any other final, final kind of thoughts, final takeaways? Yeah, we definitely want to hear. What's your thoughts on the, uh, on the policy side, too? Well, I think uh, just having the shows like this, it is, it's good to incentive. It brings things up. 
five years ago in my area, farmers wouldn't have even known what a cover crop is. Now there's been a lot of talk about it. We've got some neighbors 20 miles away that we've watched. They'll harvest edible beans and plant a cover crop. That looks good. I, I'm pretty sure we're going to be trying some of it. We will start out slow, probably not one or five acres, but maybe 40, 50 acres or something and, and try it and see how it goes. And, and I think if it gets in the neighborhood, you'll see more people trying it. We, we have actually tried planting a cover crop in standing corn probably for the last three years. I think we're doing it too late. We didn't know what we're doing. We, we fly it on, seed on with an airplane. We've got a guy, a landlord that feeds cattle. Um, he would like to see a cover crop in there, and we've tried along with him, but we just can't get anything established. You know, and, and we'll keep trying things, but I think it's, some of it, it's too late. The ground's cold and shaded. You know, to plant a cover crop after we harvest corn up north, it, it's, it's pretty late. Last year we were harvesting corn on frozen ground and doing the tillage right at the end. So some years it'll work, but I think if we can get cover crop in there, it's good. And I, you know, even at Farm Fest, we probably wouldn't have had a, a show like this 10 years ago or five years ago. So I, or last year too, maybe. Yep. <laughs> All right, I think uh, we're getting down here. We're going to have to wrap up here. So I want to thank everybody for coming. We got Jody DeYoung Hughes of the University and Cody Nelson of Soil RX. Um, this is this is the end of season one. Yeah, the end of season Listen one. Listen to that it. round of applause. We made, it. we made it. Yeah. I'm part of the finale. Jody was on the first episode and the last episode. I think. Awesome, Ooh. and I didn't even get killed off. That's cool. Yeah. We want to thank our dads for being on here too. That's pretty special for us to be able to have this conversation with them. I think also and yeah. yeah. And just a reminder that if you haven't subscribed, I need to tell you you need to subscribe. So shame on you if you have not yet. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and now Instagram at Fieldwork Talk. I'm pretty excited we're on Instagram now. Um, go ahead and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to all the people who support Fieldwork and make it possible. Oh, man. Now you better open that script up, Mitchell. I need my script for the credits. All right, here we go. Annie Baxter, Amy Scotchless-Cole, Todd Melby, Lauren Humpert, Dan Ackerman, Laura Doherty, Kristen Schmidt, and Renee Kosman. Thanks to American Public Media, audio engineering staff for all their help, especially Veronica Rodriguez, Michael Osborne, who are here with us at FarmFest. Thanks, you guys. Thanks to Johnny Vince Evans for our great fieldwork theme song. We're so official we have a theme song, I just can't get over that. We do, yeah. And we did get our helicopters, too. Yeah, we got helicopters. They don't really take us anywhere, and my son flew mine into the pool last week, but we did get our helicopters. Uh, and of course, we are grateful to Amy Latessa and Kent Tisi from Idea Ag for their help making this show happen today. And thanks again to our guests, especially our dads and the great audience here. Thank you to Jody and Cody, Cody everybody that made this happen. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.